We're not fooling around here, though. Uh, we don't uh, want this to drag on months and months and months, which appears to be the administration's strategy. Uh, so they just need to know that even as they try to undermine our ability to find the facts around the president's effort to coerce a foreign leader, leader to create uh, dirt that he can use against the political opponent, um, that they will be strengthening the case on obstruction if they uh, behave that way. That was House Intelligence Committee Adam Schiff saying what is by now abundantly clear to everybody in Washington. The investigation into the president's conduct with Ukraine is deadly serious and, the way things are now heading, is very likely to result in his impeachment by the full House of Representatives. More than that, the investigation is clearly widening. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has now admitted he was listening in on the call with President Zelensky when Trump asked the Ukrainian leader for a favor to investigate the activities of Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden, a request that had only one obvious purpose, to discredit a political rival in next year's election. Did Pompeo speak up after the call and admonish the president for injecting domestic politics into American foreign policy? And what about Vice President Pence, who met with Zelensky in Poland on September 1 and, according to his own account, talked to him about the administration's, quote, great concerns about Ukrainian corruption, apparent code words for the singular focus on Biden. What did the vice president know and when did he know it? As the subpoenas fly and the depositions begin, we'll discuss all things Ukraine on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, man, the head is spinning. Uh, this uh, is uh, clearly rapidly escalating the investigation into the uh, president's dealings with Ukraine and that, you know, bizarre request to Zelensky. And it seems to me that there is now an inevitability to this process. I mean, we've got the depositions coming up of uh, Ambassador Volker, the special envoy to Ukraine. The the ambassador who was recalled is uh, due to testify. Pompeo listening in on the phone call that makes him a co-conspirator to whatever the president was doing. You know, it's it's going to get really, really messy. Yeah, this is uh, this case is is just so much different from from the Russia investigation in really important ways. And I think we've talked about some of the obvious things. This puts Trump at the center of it. Wiley's president. He is initiating the collusion, not simply being approached by the Russians. But I think in an important way, what's what's different about uh, different about this is that. And Tony Blinken, our, our next uh, guest, is going to get into this. Trump used government agencies and he reached into the bureaucracy in a way to use people to advance his interests. And those people are not all just 
political hacks and Trump acolytes. They are foreign service officers, you know, ambassadors, you know, people who I guess he would regard as the deep state, but they are potential and likely fact witnesses in this investigation and will be deposed this right. coming week and next week. And I suspect uh, fairly soon we'll see them testify publicly. Right. Uh, well, by the way, and what did what did Stephen Miller, the president's zealous royal aide, call the whistleblower on TV last weekend a deep state operative? So, you know, they are clearly hitting the idea that this uh, and reviving the idea that there is a deep state embedded in the government out to get President Trump and that this is all a uh, setup of some kind, and they got some new ammunition as we speak. The New York Times has just moved the story that Schiff had a heads up to uh, the whistleblower and what his allegations were. According to the Times account that just moved, the CIA officer approached a House Intelligence Committee aide with his concerns about what Trump had said after he had initially made this anonymous complaint to the CIA general counsel. And then the House staff member suggests the officer, the CIA officer, find a lawyer to advise him and file a whistleblower complaint, which he then, which the aide then tells Schiff about. So Schiff knew that the whistleblower complaint was coming, was aware of where this was going, and it sort of, you know, can yeah. be used. There's nothing on its face improper about what Schiff has done, but it can be used to portray this as a setup. Yes, the, and, and the, the Trumpies were already laying the groundwork for this exact situation because they were saying it looked like that whistleblower complaint had been written by, you know, smart lawyers uh, potentially up on the intelligence committee. And uh, I think Trump used the word set up himself. You know, my guess is what happened here is that uh, this uh, CIA officer didn't know exactly how to uh, bring this these allegations of misconduct uh, you know, to the right people. He certainly didn't seem to realize that he could file a whistleblower complaint from the beginning because he didn't do that. The first thing he did was drop this anonymous tip uh, on the CIA uh, general counsel. But then he did what CIA and intelligence officials do. They're you know, main point of contact for, you know, accountability issues are the oversight committees, the House Intelligence Committee. So in some ways, I think that is sort of going by the book. Now, the question that I'm interested in, you know, that the Senate Intelligence Committee aide who spoke to him advised him, according to this New York Times story, to get a lawyer to advise him and then file a whistleblower complaint. That is what you do in these situations. The question is, did he help this whistleblower find a lawyer. Right. There's no evidence that he did, but if he did, right. uh, then that's going to be problematic. You know, look, you know what this reminds me of? Uh, you know, the Clinton Lewinsky matter. I mean, we know how this unfolded after the allegations about the president's conduct with Lewinsky surface. What is the pushback from the Clinton White House? It was a vast conspiracy. Look at how this came about. Look at how the story emerged, right? And then that 
that led, of course, to the discovery of the elves, the secret right. lawyers, George Conway being right. among it's the a most fruit prominent. Of the poisonous tree who were, you know, coaching Linda Tripp and helping her get the news about Lewinsky to the uh, uh, special count to the independent counsel, Ken Starr's office. You know. And then the, the, you know, the comeback to that is, yes, but the president did what he did, you know, irrespective of uh, what his political enemies were up to. Which was, now, true, which uh, was true in the Clinton case and yeah. may end up being true in this case right, as well. Right, right. It may be. And, you know, and, and needless to say, lest uh, we get blowback on this, no, we're not trying to minimize or equate the, uh, the magnitude of the uh, improper conduct here by uh, President Trump with um, President Clinton. But, uh, you know, there is that analogy. But let's also, we've got the news about Pompeo. I made the point in the introduction about Vice President Pence, who met with Zelensky, pushed him about corruption, talked to him about it, and also talked about the military aid. So it does raise the question, was Pence aware of the pressure that was being put on, well, it seems like he was, because he's part of it, that was being put on Zelensky over getting them to do something about Biden. And if so, if he's a co-conspirator, I think that makes the whole impeachment process, um, you know, a lot messier to say the least. And it may ultimately be what saves Trump because the idea that you, I mean, can you impeach Trump and not impeach Pence if he's part of the conspiracy of wrongdoing that you're impeaching the president for. And that being the case is the, even if you could peel off Republicans to vote against the president, they're not going to vote to uh, make uh, Nancy well, we Pelosi president. We know that impeachment yeah. is a political process, but if this were a criminal investigation, clearly what would happen is that prosecutors would go to Pence and they would put pressure on and him try to, to flip cut him. a deal. <laughs> they would right. flip him. And you know what Trump <laughs> thinks of people who, who flip. flip. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Trump seems to be in sort of full-scale meltdown mode here. I mean, you know, some of his tweets attacking the whistleblower, uh, you know, the one that struck a lot of people was the retweet of this guy, Robert Jeff the Baptist pastor, one of the president's uh, evangelical supporters, who tweeted, and what's significant about this is it was retweeted by Trump. Jeffress said was, if the Democrats are successful in removing the president from office, which they will never be, it will cause a civil war-like fracture in this nation from which our country will never recover. That is code on on the, the sort of the, the alt-right fringes, civil war. And right. I think there's a, you know, a sense that even some Republican members of co Congress like Adam Kinzinger were outraged uh, by that retweet because, right. you know, the idea is that he's inciting violence, inciting a civil war. Yeah. And I mean, to me, the the sort of deranged nature of the president's tweets in the last week are as good a signal as any that he's really worried about this. And, you know, we got we're reminded of that during his press conference with the president of Finland when he's being pushed about what exactly, this is by Jeff Mason of uh, Reuters, about what exactly he wanted uh, Zelensky to do when it came to the Bidens. And uh, his response was kind of off the charts. What do you want him to look into on Biden? Look, Biden and his son are stone cold crooked. And you know it. 
His son walks out with millions of dollars. The kid knows nothing. You know it, and so do we. Go ahead, ask a question. But the, the question, sir, was what did you want President Zelensky to do about Pre Vice President Biden and his son, Hunter? Are you talking to me? Yeah, you it was just a follow-up of what I just asked listen, you, sir. Listen, you ready? We have the president of Finland. Ask him a question. I have one for him. I just wanted to follow up on the one that I asked you, which did was, you hear what me? did you want did him you to hear me? Yes, Ask sir. him a question. I, I will. But I've my... given you a long answer. Ask this gentleman a question. Don't be rude. No, sir. I don't want to be rude. I just wanted you to have a chance to answer the question that I asked I've you. I've answered everything. It's a whole hoax. And you know who's playing into the hoax? People like you and the fake news media that we have in this country. And I say, in many cases, the corrupt media, because you're corrupt. Much of the media in this country is not just fake, it's corrupt. And good for Jeff Mason, you know, who's a pretty low-key reporter for hanging in there and continuing to hammer away and ask that yeah. question respectfully, but persistently. And Trump was you know, just, you know, really hot under the collar about that, which suggests, I think, what you're saying, that uh, uh, he's pretty worried about this. Uh, look, I think that at the end of the day, we are going to have to learn more about this whistleblower. And I think the whistleblower in some form is going to is going to come out and testify. And we're going to hear his whole story. He is the central player other than Trump in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, Although all, I disagree a little bit because, I mean, look, I think we should. It would be great to hear the whistleblower's story. But, you know, the key fact witnesses are not necessarily the whistleblower. He acknowledges much of what he knows. He knows secondhand because people told him about it. So it's getting to the, those people who told him about the concerns about what Trump had said to Zelensky, the concerns about the suspension of military aid and the reasons why uh, the, the military aid was suspended is what's really uh going to be the most damaging to the president. And that's why I think Volcker, Kurt Volcker, the ambassador who's supposed to be deposed this week behind closed doors, is an absolutely crucial witness. And um, I hope that the Schiff and the committee either immediately release the transcript or call a public hearing so we can hear uh, Volcker and maybe Ambassador Yovanovitch testify and any others who have knowledge of what went down here. And there was another development this week. We don't know the full details yet, but the State Department Inspector General asked for an urgent meeting uh, with uh, uh, the in intelligence committees mm -hmm. uh, because uh, he has in his possession documents that uh, he got from the uh, office of from the State Department Legal Advisor's office that mm -hmm. pertain to uh, Ukraine and this whole story. Um, I think it's been reported anyway that this inspector general wanted to get these documents up to the committees as quickly as possible. He called it urgent because it was important for the committees to have this information as they were interviewing and deposing uh, these State Department officials who were coming up this week. So that's a, an unknown but potentially ominous development for, uh, for Trump. Well, a lot of ominous developments to talk about, and we have uh, two great guests to talk about them, starting with Tony Blinken, uh, former Deputy Secretary of State, longtime advisor to uh, uh, Vice President Biden, and Kathy Rumler, who was a White House counsel herself. So let's get to it. We now have with us the 
perfect guest to dissect the Ukraine imbroglio, uh, Tony Blinken. Tony was a longtime foreign policy advisor to Senator Biden and then Vice President Biden, then was Deputy National Security Advisor and then Deputy Secretary of State in the Obama administration. Tony, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be with you. Thanks. So it strikes me that you undoubtedly know all the players in this fiasco and a scandal. So I just want to start out. Who's the whistleblower? <laughs> well, we all have our, our, our suspicions, but the honest truth is, I don't know. And I hope we only find out when it's appropriate to find out. Yeah, you know, what strikes me is, in all seriousness, I'm astounded that we don't know mm. at this point because... There's got to be only a small universe of people mm. who worked at the CIA, had access, worked on Ukraine matters, and had access to the documents and issues in question. Well, Michael, I think, that, I think that's right. But happily, there's a respect among most people in my line of work for the whistleblower process and the protections that come with it. It's not so, what I'm gleaning from the president's well, tweets. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the rather glaring exception. Yeah. But to the extent that other people may either have strong idea of who it might be or even know who it might be, thankfully, they're not saying anything because that would violate everything that goes along with the Whistleblower yeah. Protection Act. Well, let me ask this, Tony, because while you don't know the identity of the whistleblower, having worked inside the White House mm -hmm. and the National Security um, Agency and worked around the intelligence community for a long time and having read mm. his complaint. Do you have a sense of the profile of this person? I'm not asking that question because I'm trying to unmask him, but I think it'd be helpful for our listeners and for the American people to understand what drives someone like this to do what he did. Well, I think what drives the whistleblower to do what he or, or she did, although right. we, there, we think it's a he, we think it's a he, but, yeah. but a he. Yeah. is clearly someone who it seems was a professional in the national security and or intelligence business who found frighteningly offensive the conduct that had been relayed to him or that he witnessed on the part of the president and perhaps others in the administration. And someone motivated, at least on the, the surface of the uh, complaint itself, uh, motivated by deep concerns that what had happened was counter to the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States. So hey. that's, uh, and by the way, that's what motivates 99% um, of the people I had the good fortune to work with over almost 25 years uh, in government. Right. And I actually want to hone in on that, on that last point because we hear a lot of people saying that this particular scandal, part of the reasons it's significant is because it has real national security mm -hmm. and foreign policy implications. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't fully understand why. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it would be interesting to hear from your perspective what kind of damage does this kind of conduct do in terms of our uh, national security interests and our relations with foreign, hmm. uh, foreign states? Well, well, think first about what the president is alleged to have done. It is alleged, and by the way, on the, on the very face of the conversation and the accounting of that conversation, I'm not calling it a transcript because the conversation is really a summary, uh, not, uh, not a direct transcript. But what we know on its face is that the president sought to pressure another country to dig up discredited dirt on his leading political opponent. And if they did not, the clear implication was the military assistance that they desperately needed to counter the ongoing aggression that they face every day from Russia wasn't going to happen. And neither was the political support from the country that matters most to them, to Ukraine in this case, uh, and that is the United States. 
So <laughs> that basically says that our foreign policy and our national security is for sale. And the price is um, doing the bidding, the political bidding, the personal political bidding of the president of the United States. And the president, again, it would seem, has put the foreign policy of our country and the national security of our country in the service of his reelection, not the national interest. So it's hard to think of anything more undermining of our national security. And it says to other countries, hey, it's open season. If I can go to whoever is president of the United States, if this is allowed to stand, if I can go to whoever's president of the United States and say, I've got dirt on someone you don't like, what can I get for that? You can only imagine where that might go. So, Tony, look, um, Vice President Biden is clearly a central player mm. in all this. He's mentioned specifically by the president mm. in the phone call. You were with Biden all through the period that he was the point person for the Obama administration on Ukraine. Were you aware of Hunter Biden's role as on the advisory board of that company, Burisma Holdings, the Ukrainian energy holdings company? And, you know, did you discuss it with him? So I don't have any contemporaneous recollection of that, of, uh, of, of the company or that, uh, that issue. Or the fact that Hunter Biden was working yeah. in Ukraine had been yeah, put not, on the board of this company. Not, not something I remember at the time. I think in the, the, during the most of the period in question, I was at the State Department at, uh, as Deputy Secretary of State. And what I do know is this. The vice president was the point person on Ukraine, and he was carrying out the policy of the United States government, a policy that was established through the normal interagency process with multiple agencies, to include the State Department, the Treasury Department, the Commerce Department, the Defense Department, you name it, all weighing in, and a policy to combat corruption in Ukraine, because we saw it as the poison that was eating away at Ukraine's democracy from within. The Russians were eating at it from without. They were Corruption was eating at it from within. And it was the policy of not just the United States government, but the policy of all of our closest allies who were working in support of Ukraine, France, Germany, the United Kingdom. It was the policy of the European Union. It was the policy of the IMF. And the person who was the biggest obstacle to actually fighting corruption effectively and to Ukraine's democratic advancement was the very person charged with fighting corruption, the prosecutor general, Mr. Shokin. Right. And so it made a good deal of sense for all of the countries who were trying to support Ukraine to convince the Ukrainians that this guy needed to go. And that's what the vice president did. But that said, it has been reported that there were concerns within the State Department mm. about the optics of having the vice president's son serving on this board of this company while the vice president was the point person yeah. for Ukraine. Look, <laughs> do, you, do you acknowledge that you know the optics of this were troubling? Michael, here's what's happening. The president of the United States is throwing up as much discredited dirt as he can find and hoping that something sticks. And even if it doesn't stick, what's happening is exactly what's happening in our conversation, which it's compelling reporters, journalists, the media to talk about it. And all of a sudden, they're talking about discredited allegations about uh, the vice president. People hear allegations. They hear corruption. I'm not going to play that game. It's uh, but that's that exactly really, what that's exactly that really what the president wants. I mean, you know, look, if you watch Fox News yeah. at night, um, which some of us do to sort of understand the political environment sure. we're living in, this is the constant drumbeat. Yeah. And yes, there has been no evidence that has been put forward no, that, that shows the vice president was acting in order to benefit no, let me, his let me, son's let company. Let me, but. Let me add, let me add yeah, to that. But that not said, only not only no evidence, right. but it has been demonstrably shown to be a lie. 
what irks me, right. among other things, yeah. is you'll see reports, and, and it, they'll rightly say, this has been unsubstantiated. It's not just unsubstantiated. It has been affirmatively debunked by virtually every leading media organization. It has been well, affirmatively debunked that the vice president right. was acting in order to benefit his son's right. company. But right. the question I asked is about the optics of this, because a conflict of interest, as you know, is often about the appearance of conflict of interest. That's what we have ethics laws for, to avoid appearances of conflict of interest. Wasn't it an appearance of conflict People for that to for for that relationship to take place while the vice president was the point Look, person on Ukraine. People will have to make their their judgments about that. All that I can speak to is what the vice president did and what he did was to carry out very effectively, I might add, the policy of the United States government and the policy of our closest allies when it came to Ukraine. If you were aware of the relationship at the time, would you have uh, advised him to tell his son to get off the board of that company? That's a that's a, a, a rear-looking hypothetical. I don't answer <laughs> forward-looking hypotheticals. I'm not going to answer rear-looking hypotheticals. Okay. We should point out that you are the foreign policy advisor yes. to the Biden that's campaign. Right. So you have right. a certain allegiance mm-hmm. there that um, uh, our that, listeners should that is be a, That is an of. important disclosure. Yes. yes. Right. Let's talk about the, um, the actual phone call between Biden and Zelensky. Because when you were between President Trump and uh, between I'm sorry between President Trump and and wait wait a second you, you see how Fox <laughs> News <laughs> penetrates <laughs> even skullduggery <laughs> right yeah. uh, because as Deputy National Security Advisor mm-hmm. you had some opportunities to be involved in that process and even yeah. to occasionally listen listen into those M- more than occasion it was normal that when the president made a call with a foreign leader either the National Security Advisor or one of the deputies would be present, as well usually as a senior person on the National Security Council staff, the person responsible for that particular region or country, taking notes. And in fact, that person is, this is where the infamous transcript in quotation marks comes from. It's, there's not a recording made of these conversations. It is a staff person taking notes, trying to reconstruct the conversation. Someone from the White House Situation Room is also taking notes, and these things are put together and they reconstruct And uh, there the is no recording... For security reasons, so that uh, foreign intelligence services can't listen in? Uh, what is the reason for that? There's been a long tradition of not recording uh, these conversations yeah. that goes back to uh, the distant ages. And maybe yeah. there's a sense that it's, it wasn't proper to record conversations. It, it's kind of a almost a strange throwback. But the irony is that these conversations for posterity are, in effect, recorded by someone furiously trying to keep up with the right, conversation right. And, and taking notes and then reconstructing it. And typically, how widely disseminated would the transcripts or the, uh, the, the memos memorializing those conversations be disseminated? Uh, where, who- A lot depends on the, on the content, which is to say, if there's highly classified information being discussed, for example, if you were talking about a covert operation, if the, the Osama bin Laden raid or something like that, that would obviously be highly classified, highly sensitive, and that would get very small dissemination. If it's the rather typical conversation between the president and a foreign leader, where whatever the issues of the day are, the subject of the conversation, most of them not at all uh, classified, then it is uh, kept in a place that uh, appropriate NSC staff can look at it. It would go to relevant cabinet secretaries and or their, their deputies who needed to know about the, the substance of the conversation. But it really varies issue by issue, country by country. What, in my experience, did not happen, <laughs> never happened, was for a document that accounted for a conversation with no classified or highly sensitive information being stored not in the normal place that these conversations are stored, but in the most highly classified separate 
server that is reserved for things that have the most secret uh, and closely guarded intelligence. And as, as, right. I, as I like to say, oh, the irony, we're dealing with a separate server. Which may be in the Ukraine, yeah. according to the president. Right? But what the Trump right. White yeah. House uh, is saying is that uh, you know, early in his presidency, mm. at least two of these conversations, I mean, the mm. conversation with the Australian prime minister and then the conversation that he had, that was not a telephone conversation, mm. but with the uh, Russian foreign minister yeah. and ambassador, leaked to the press, which was also unprecedented, I think. Mm -hmm. And so they had an obligation to take more stringent security measures. Did they treat every tra every conversation that way? Well, we don't well, know. That's an interesting question. It would be but interesting. Is there, anything, is there anything on its face improper about taking steps to restrict access to the uh, notes or memos on these conversations, given that there were leaks of earlier ones? I mean, is there is there something improper about that on its face? Honestly, Michael, the, the, the uh, up to now, the system in place, which is to say, look, it's not as if the, the transcripts of a conversation, the accountings of a conversation, are put on some kind of public server that anyone can have access to. Even the right. most basic server that's used is restricted to uh, folks who have uh, the appropriate clearances to be on that system and are typically uh, just members of the National Security Council staff. So <laughs> the irony here, again, is that uh, to the extent that prior conversations were leaked, they were leaked from within, from someone on the, on the staff. Who knows who that was? Right. But I mean, if you were deputy national security yeah. advisor, uh, you know, in your old job, you'd want to know, wouldn't you? And you would take steps to find out and to make sure it didn't happen again. Uh, I would. Yes, you're right. I would want to know. I'd want to make sure it didn't happen again. But I'd want to make sure that I was treating everything the same. And I would not want to be in a situation where, again, this is what we don't know. But press accounts at least have suggested that a small number of conversations were put on this highly classified server that is reserved only for the most sensitive issues of intelligence and national security. And if a small number of conversations were treated that way, but every other presidential conversation was treated the old way, put on the, the, the server that has wider access, right. it would be interesting to know. I wanted to ask you, Tony, about, I mean, as the former Deputy Secretary of State, you still have a lot of friends who are in the Foreign Service, mm. who work in the State Department. And the news, as we record today, is that, you know, this back and forth between Secretary of State Pompeo mm. and Congress about uh, making some of these State Department officials uh, available. Mm. What impact this is having on the people that you worked with in the State Department? And I want to ask you about some specific people. I'm Everyone's interested in the U.S. ambassador mm -hmm. to Ukraine who was mm -hmm. recalled, Marie Yanovovich. Mm -hmm. Not sure I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. her name right. What are you hearing about what's going on inside the State Department? And do you know anything about what this former ambassador to the Ukraine was doing and why she was recalled? So I know the ambassador pretty well. She was considered one of the stars of the Foreign Service. She's had a remarkable career, uh, ambassador three times, highly regarded by her colleagues, highly regarded as someone who was the utmost professional, usually competent, an incredibly effective representative for the United States, and someone who played things by the book. I don't know what happened and why she was relieved of her uh, duties early. There's just a lot of speculation about that in the, uh, in the media, but we'll have to see what actually comes out in any hearings. But uh, knowing her, knowing her career, having worked with her, something is very, very wrong about the apparent fact that she was removed early from, from her job. What's going on in the Foreign Service? Huh. A lot of things, and uh, none of them are good. First of all, we have the backdrop of the fact that even before this episode, you'd had an atrophying uh, of, the, uh, of the State Department at every single level under this administration. 
applications to take the Foreign Service exam were down by about 50%. The exodus of people at mid-career levels, uh, people that I know very well, was extraordinary and, and, and unparalleled at any, uh, to any point in recent history. And then some of the most senior leaders in the department were literally, this is not by Secretary Pompeo, in fairness to him, by Secretary Tillerson, given buyout offers and packages. And so you'd seen a hollowing out at every level of the department. And that's something that can't be recovered by flipping a switch. You're losing a, a, a generation of people. So that was already pretty, as bad as it's been. Now, what's happened, again, if the reports are to be believed, and either just on the straight reading of the, the transcript of the conversation between the president and his Ukrainian counterpart, is that the State Department has been weaponized in the service of the president's political, personal political agenda. Uh, so you can only imagine what kind of impact that would have on the morale of professional foreign service officers. The larger story here is a corruption of the agencies of government to weaponize them and to put them at the political service of the president. We see that potentially with the State Department. We need to know more. We see it potentially with the Justice Department and the allegations about the role of the attorney general. We see it with the vice president and his office, and we see it with the National Security Council staff and the way this transcript was treated. That is devastating, and it not only uh, saps the uh, morale, but it, it just fundamentally undermines our institutions of government. So the quid for the quo of getting the Ukrainians to investigate mm. the um, Burisma Holdings, the company that Biden's son was on, was the military aid package, mm -hmm. which included funding for Javelin anti-tank mm -hmm. missiles. Mm -hmm. Now, the point has been made that the administration you served mm -hmm. in, uh, the Obama administration, did not provide mm -hmm. Javelin anti-tank mm -hmm. missiles to the Ukrainians when the Russians were on their territory mm -hmm. and uh, occupying a mm -hmm. huge swath of land, uh, Crimea and Donbass. So... Why didn't you provide the Javelin anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainians? So there was a vigorous and ongoing debate about that question. Um, and it was something that we came back to uh, repeatedly. Some of us were advocates for providing those defensive weapons, defensive lethal weapons. Others were concerned that it would lead to a slippery slope where it would just get us deeper and deeper involved and fighting on a terrain that was more to Russia's advantage uh, than to our own. Because... Russia was right there. We were not. And the argument here was that if we started down the weapons path, the Russians would not only match us, they would trump us, no pun intended, and we would find ourselves in an escalatory cycle that we couldn't control and that Russia would dominate. And again, for Russia, this was more existential than it was for us. That was the argument. Some of us believed that there was a real role for these defensive weapons in at least raising the cost on Russia of its incursions into Ukraine. Who was, maybe, who was arguing I'm against gonna, providing I'm, missiles? I'm, I'm not going to go uh, and do the, uh, you know, who was, who was advocating in, what. In retrospect, do you believe you were right and they were wrong and um, the missiles should have been provided? Look, we'll, it's, again, we'll, we'll never know. We'll, we won't know if it would have made a difference. We won't know if it would have had a real impact on Russia's calculus. It's a very reasonable argument, I think, to say that it, it might have, but we, we just can't know that. And I think ultimately the president decided and the president was concerned that uh, it would simply lead to escalation that we couldn't control. And we were better off doing what we did very effectively, which was dealing with Russia in effect asymmetrically when it came to Ukraine and leading the international effort, which never would have happened without the leadership but of given, President Obama given, on well, sanctions, but, on putting pressure on Russia. Just last point on this, but given that 
what a lot of people find scandalous about this current scenario mm-hmm. is that the this military aid was suspended. Mm-hmm. And you acknowledge that the president you served had blocked the very same military mm-hmm. aid in question. Doesn't that make it harder to, you know, advance the argument that this is as scandalous as you're suggesting when you didn't do the uh, There's you a, didn't do what this first, president was also not doing for first, a while. This is first this is not just apples and oranges. This is I can't even think of uh, the, the extent to describe this as a false comparison. The decision made by the Obama administration was made on the basis of what is the best policy for the United States to follow to advance our national national interests, national security interests, foreign policy interests. As best we can tell, the decision to suspend or withhold the military aid to Ukraine now was based on what is best for President uh, Trump's personal political gain. There's no comparison. But by the uh, way, so, and, yeah. But also, I, another important thing here is there was a lot more to it than military assistance. That's the lead. That's the lead item, and it's and it's important, especially to Ukraine. But again, if these reports are to be believed, it seems as if the United States was also withholding its political support to the new Ukrainian president. Phone calls were held back between President Trump and the president. Meetings that the new Ukrainian president wanted at the White House. Sending Pence to... Sending Pence and then canceling uh, his presence at the the inauguration. And it's hard to uh, overstate how important those things are to a country like Ukraine, where the United States is its number one and most important outside patron. The irony, too, and there's always irony in these things, is in that conversation between the president and his Ukrainian counterpart... There was a lot of discussion about how, you know, the Europeans aren't doing their share and the United States is. Well, that only underscores how important the United States is to Ukraine and thus how devastating it would be for Ukraine not to have the political, economic or military assistance from Washington. But is it plausible to you? Because that is what Trump has said. He withheld the military assistance because Germany and other European countries were not doing their fair share. Is is that... That's not what the plain um, meaning of the um, of the conversation is. When it segues immediately from "Hey, we really Ukrainian, we really need this military assistance" to President, uh, yes, and I'd like you to do me a favor, and that favor is digging up discredited uh, dirt on my. Actually, that was not the first favor he was talking about. The first favor was helping him find the missing DNC server server, hiding somewhere in in Kiev. Yes, and 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 Tom Bossert, the president's um, uh, first homeland security advisor, was on on television just a few days ago, saying he had repeatedly told the president that that was a conspiracy theory and uh, that had been clearly debunked. And the president insisted on continuing to spout it. What did you make of the fact that Secretary Pompeo was on the phone call? Look, on one level, you know, uh, you can see a a justification for that, which is to say, um, I'm sure there were occasions when, well, look, secretaries of state or deputy secretaries of state have on occasion been in the room in the Oval Office when the president is uh, making a a call to a foreign leader where it's important that the secretary uh, have immediate knowledge of the call or maybe wanting to weigh in with the the president during the conversation. And so, you know, this didn't happen frequently, but the secretary may have been on the call. That doesn't strike me as, as something that's totally out of the ordinary. The issue, though, is not, to me at least, necessarily his presence on the call. It's hearing the president try to shake down the Ukrainians for discredited political dirt on his leading political adversary. Why didn't he say anything? Maybe he did. We just don't know yet. What about the fact that our foreign policy on Ukraine seems to have been subcontracted 
to a private attorney, Rudy Giuliani, away from the State Department? What about the fact that the State Department then was either helping to facilitate contacts between Giuliani and the Ukrainians, or maybe was trying to do damage control? We don't know. Hopefully we'll find out in these hearings. But you would think that the Secretary of State would stand up for his department to make sure that it hadn't been had its mandate taken away from it. And if he heard something untoward and improper, or in this case, deeply troubling, might have raised the alarm. We'll see. Maybe he did internally. What do you think of uh, Special Envoy uh, Kurt uh, Volker's role in all of this? Uh, uh, Kurt will have to, you know, speak for himself, which I Imagine he's going. He's going to, he's going to <laughs> yeah, this, this week, I think, behind yeah. closed doors uh, in a deposition. And, uh, and we'll see. Look, I've I've yeah. I've, uh, I've known Kurt for years. He was a former ambassador to NATO. Uh, he's um, uh, someone who's you know uh, highly uh, competent and, and experienced. And we'll see. My my hope is that if uh, the, if he was playing a role, it was to try it, to yeah. uh, mitigate the damage. Not it's, well. Uh, it seems to me that there that people find themselves in this sort of trap that, on the one hand, they're trying to, as you put it, mitigate the damage and manage a very difficult situation, but they run the risk of then facilitating the very thing they're trying to, to well, mitigate. Isn't, isn't that the larger story of the Trump administration? I think you've got a, a lot of good people who I know who have, who have served, and, they're, and I think they've, the, the argument they've made to themselves is, I have a duty, and if damage is being done, maybe I can do something about it to stop it, to slow it down. But there's a, a kind of sell-by date on this at which— You become an enabler. You become an enabler. And um, that's a, a huge dilemma. Well, it does—you know, just getting back to your point about, you know, Pompeo, if he was on the call, did he say anything? What would, He certainly would have heard the mm. president's improper request to Zelensky. And, you know, you referenced Vice President Pence before, mm. who met with Zelensky in Poland and then had his trip— uh, canceled, mm-hmm. or maybe it was the other way around, but both mm-hmm. occurred. It does raise the question if this is going to a trial in the Senate and it's abuse of office at a minimum, you know, aren't they co-conspirators in the president's conduct here? And if that's the case, how does that play out in the context of impeachment? Well, that's what I meant, Michael, when I suggested that the president seems to have corrupted these other offices and agencies of his administration and turned them into weapons for his personal use and to advance his personal uh, political uh, prospects. And (laughs) that's devastating. So for sure, I think um, Congress is going to want to know what these various individuals knew, when they knew it, and what they did about it. Well, yeah, but then the question becomes, can you impeach do, do you have to impeach the vice president? Do you have to impeach the secretary of state? Do you have to impeach the attorney general? Well, look, uh, the most important thing is we follow the facts. Let's see what facts come out. And uh, then uh, Congress what, needs to follow them wherever they go. What are the most important open questions for you? If you were, chair, if you were Chairman Schiff, what are the things that you would want to know right now? Well, I think there are a number of things that are critical. One is, you know, there's this specific focus on Ukraine and In that context, uh, I think it's important to know how long this has been going on, whether there are other elements in this effort to pressure the Ukrainians to manufacture dirt on on Joe Biden that we don't know about, other dots uh, to be connected. And again, the most important thing, it seems to me, is um, uh, how pervasive this was, uh, the extent to which other agencies of government were knowingly involved in doing the president's political work instead of advancing the national security and foreign policy of the United States. Those are all critical, uh, critical questions. And they're critical because to the extent that they were, 
that needs to be stopped, and it needs to be stopped immediately. As we mentioned, you are a, a part of the Biden mm. campaign. Uh, now, a number of the most of the leading Democratic presidential candidates, I believe, have uh, come out forcefully for impeachment. Mm. Uh, the vice president has been very critical of President Trump on this, but I have not heard him say that the president should be impeached. Why not? I'm not going to speak for him on this. I can say that he strongly supports, and indeed uh, early on, the need for an investigation for this process. And I think he believes we need to, fo again, follow the facts wherever they lead. But let's get, uh, let's get the facts out. And I think that's where most Americans are. They'd like to get the facts out. And then depending on the facts, we'll, uh, Congress will make a determination, the House will make a determination whether to proceed with articles of impeachment. That's the right process to follow. How much has this hurt him? Look, what's, you know, what's striking to me, Michael, about this is that the president of the United States seems to spend an extraordinary amount of his time trying to come up with machinations to undercut and uh, to uh, take down one person in particular, Joe Biden. He tweets about him all the time, obsessively, and he seems to now put the foreign policy of our country at the service of his own reelection and at the expense of Joe Biden. And that says to me that, gee, maybe the last person he wants to face in a general election is Joe Biden. So it's, it's pretty powerful evidence that uh, President Trump sees Biden as his most threatening political rival uh, for, the, uh, for the presidency. And that's why he's spending so much of his time abusing the powers of the presidency to get at him. Well, I should point out that the phone call in question took place in July when the vice president was the clear leader in the polls. Mm -hmm. That's not as much the case today. In fact, I believe Senator Warren has overtaken him in, the, uh, in most of the polls at the moment, which is an indication that both he's, she has been surging, but also he has been nicked by all this. Oh, look, I think what we've seen is, is something pretty remarkable. I can't remember, at least on the Democratic side of the aisle, and may, maybe, maybe uh, Hillary Clinton is the closest example, to this, but I can't remember the kind of unrelentingly negative coverage that a candidate has received like the negative coverage that Biden's been receiving over the last three or four months. Most of the stories about him are negative. Most of his leading friendly competitors for the Democratic nomination uh, have been getting exactly the opposite. So to me, uh, his resilience in this is pretty uh, extraordinary, and there's a good reason for it. There's a deep reservoir of goodwill, among certainly among Democrats, but I think it's much broader than that toward the uh, former vice president. People know him. They like him. They think that uh, he's someone who is uh, going to do right by them. And so, you know, this is, it's no surprise that these, these polls come and go. They go up, they go down. Uh, he was uh, already extremely well known. Others were less known. It's normal that as they get better known, their numbers may go up. Someone's numbers go down. But hey, he's still leading virtually every national poll that I've seen, the state by state. That goes up, that goes down. People get some momentum. They come back down. But He's in, a, he's in a pretty good place. Well, we think you've been in a pretty good place appearing here on Skullduggery, okay. and um, we want to thank you for coming and hope you'll come back. Thanks. Great to be with you guys. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate it. We are
are now joined by Kathy Rumler, former White House counsel under President Barack Obama and uh, all-around plugged-in lawyer in Washington. Kathy, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, guys. Nice to um, see you both. So not much going on these days no, uh, in D.C., but we <laughs> thought we'd ask you uh, get your take on the events unfolding involving the president's phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine. Clearly, the House is moving inexorably on the impeachment front. What do you think? Is the president <laughs> going to be impeached, and should he be? Oh, boy. I don't know that I'm in the predicting business, because as you know, it's a highly politicized process that I'm sure the House is going to be kind of you know recalibrating on almost a, a, a daily basis. But the nature of the charge is obviously very serious. It goes to the core of whether or not the president really understands what it means to be the president of the United States as opposed to what it means to be Donald Trump. And I think that at a minimum, the call raises very serious questions about whether or not he, in that instance, abused his power and authority as president and potentially whether or not you know, he has done so on other occasions. So it's, I think it is very serious and I think that um, it needs to be investigated and the House is the right body to do it. So let's walk through a little bit how this unfolded, because there's a lot of questions, a lot of legal questions about the way the whistleblower's complaint was handled. And as we understand it, the whistleblower, whose identity we still do not know, originally anonymously reports what he's learned or heard to the CIA general counsel, Courtney Elwood who then goes to the White House mm-hmm. Counsel's Office, your, well, actually, the Deputy Legal Chief for the National Security Council, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is, is that an office that reports to the White House Counsel? Or? It's a great question because it's been handled differently in different White Houses. Right. Um, in our White House, that position that's currently held by John Eisenberg was what we call dual-hatted. So that role was both the legal advisor to the National Security Council, Mm -hmm. as well as the Deputy White House Counsel for National Security. So one way to think about it is that his client, his sort of immediate client, and in some ways supervisor, was the National Security Advisor, while also you know, his boss would be the White House counsel, at least as the way we structured it. I believe that this White House has structured it the same way. But in prior iterations, that person has not been part of the White House counsel's office formally. Is that typically a political position? Is it appointed by the president? Okay. Yes, absolutely. So Elwood goes to Eisenberg in the White House, reports this, the concerns that the anonymous complainant has made about the phone call. And then Eisenberg calls up the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. And it has been reported, John Demers, who's the chief of the National Security Division, goes over to the White House and reviews the rough transcript memo of the phone call Mm -hmm. and determines there is not grounds for a criminal investigation. And at that point, I guess that's, you know, that's all that is done. Meanwhile, the, um, the whistleblower concerned that action isn't being taken then goes to Well, the, more than that, yeah. because as I understand it, 
lawyers uh, in the White House Counsel's Office begin interviewing people inside the White House, and that spooks the whistleblower. That's part of the reason, as I think has been reported, that he comes forward with a formal whistleblower complaint. Okay, so before we get to the formal whistleblower complaint and how that was handled, let's take what's been reported about what took place initially. Was that the appropriate way for White House lawyers, for the, first the CIA lawyer and then the White House lawyer, for handling this matter? Well, let me start by saying I'm always hesitant. Let mm-hmm. me be generous and say I'm always mm-hmm. hesitant to be critical from the outside when we don't know exactly all of the information that, that people had who were making decisions. I'd say that first. And the second thing I'd say is that in a situation like this, like many situations that come up of extreme sensitivity within the government, um, there's not really like a handbook for how you're supposed to handle it. So people in these these positions are, are generally trying to make their best judgments, in my experience, and I'm going to assume that the lawyers here were doing the same. So, you know, they're trying to do their best. So here's, let me sort of guess as to what the thinking was. Typically... The deputy counsel for national security or the legal advisor to the NSC, right, same person, different titles, is the person who has the most contact with the general counsels of the national security agencies, CIA, the you know, DNI general counsel, the State Department legal advisor, DOD general counsel. So there's a natural relationship there, presumably, of trust. So that's the issue one. Issue two is, is that typically people view the lawyer in that role as being a bit less political than even the White House counsel, because the White House counsel is privy to everything that's going on on the domestic side of the House, as we would say, which traditionally is a more, you know, that's where the more of the sort of nitty gritty political stuff happens. And the national security staff tries to stay very insulated and sort of apolitical. So I'm guessing that Courtney Elwood, her thinking was, this is sort of the right channel of communication. And and I think that that's probably appropriate. I think contacting the White House about a White House matter through legal channels is appropriate and, and was the right thing to do, or it's very difficult to criticize it. It's hard to see where else she could go. Well, couldn't she also, this is essentially an anonymous tip about misconduct. Couldn't she also, and by the way, we don't know that she didn't, but couldn't she also let the uh, the DNI or the IG for the intelligence committee who eventually learned about it through through the whistleblower complaint? Absolutely. And I think probably, strictly speaking, both of those notifications should have been made at the same time to the notification to the IG and then also a notification to the White House. The tricky part here with respect to the White House, because it's such um, a unique entity within the federal government structure, is that the IG does not have jurisdiction to investigate allegation of misconduct at the White House. So then the question is, well, who does? And that's why the the White House counsel role is so pivotal, because in the first instance, it's the White House counsel and those who report to him or her that have to make judgments about whether something should be investigated, you know, and by whom, and whether a referral to the Justice Department is appropriate. Was strange, a little bit strange to me here about the if it's true that then Eisenberg calls over to the National Security Division, that doesn't strike me as the right place to go at all. 
And, you know, maybe he'd Why not? Well, because the National Security Division doesn't have expertise in this type of a matter. So this would be something that typically would be reviewed uh, if you're thinking about it as a potential corruption matter which is probably the right way to think about it, it would be reviewed by the public integrity section within the criminal division of DOJ. So, you know, the National Security Division, for example, you know, they have counterespionage, they have, you know, counterterrorism, but it's not... On the other hand, the, know, the, the original tip is pretty vague. So I think we just know that there's an yeah. allegation of some kind some of misconduct. Kind. And, and, and that may explain it. And it's the lawyer for the it. National Security yeah. Council. So, you know, okay. presumably right. going to the National Security Division. Yeah, I mean, that's the person he usually deals with. Right. So, okay. right. so we're talking about process here, and process is important. And I yes. want to get back to the conduct of lawyers, uh, particularly what happened, what White House lawyers uh, did with the, the notes for the call. But before that, let me just ask you about the substance of the allegations. You've read, I'm sure, the transcript or the report on the tra- of the conversation between Trump and Zelensky and the whistleblower complaint. What leapt out at you in terms of potential violations of law or violations of protocol or, you know, the kinds of uh, kind of conduct that might have in some way um, implicated or threatened our national security? What really jumped out at you when you read those documents? Well... First and foremost, you know, that the president, president of the United States himself is personally appealing to, cajoling, requesting, whatever, you know, set of, of words you want to use. I don't think it really matters at the end of the day, in my mind. And I don't necessarily think that the particular words that were used is that significant. The gist of it was, hey, I'm asking you with all of the might of the United States government, of the leader of the free world, I'm asking you, newly elected president of a relatively not so strong <laughs> sovereign, to investigate someone I view as a domestic political rival. I mean, that's jaw-dropping, right? That's really, really problematic. Jaw-dropping and improper, but is it a violation of any law? I'm not, well, there are always questions I think we saw this kind of throughout, you know, the Mueller investigation about whether or not conduct that is engaged in by the president of the United States is a violation of criminal law, even if the same conduct engaged in by another would clearly be a violation well, but, of yeah, criminal but that's law. That's a separate right? question about whether the president. But that's a constitutional could, could, yeah, issue. Right, right. But, but you know, the, the question it seems to me, for impeachment purposes, is going to be, is there a violation of the law? I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure that's right. I don't think that it, they have to conclude. They don't, they don't have to. But historically, we've had three presidential impeachments, and each and every one has started with a accusation of a criminal act by the president of the United States. Going back to Andrew Johnson, it was the the Tenure of Office uh, Act. You know, with Richard Nixon, it was obstruction of justice of a burglary. Mm -hmm. You know, with Bill Clinton, it was perjury. Each and every time, it was about a crime that was allegedly committed. In this case, is there a crime that has been possibly committed here by the president? I don't know. And I don't think we know enough yet. Because... It's not, remember that I was a prosecutor for many years. And the question about whether or not a crime is committed is really a question about how much proof is there that a crime is committed. And 
you know, is there enough proof from my perspective, which is not an impeachment perspective as a former prosecutor is, is there enough proof here to, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime was committed? And in, in a crime like this, which is, you know, any myriad of sort of, you know, anti-corruption type offenses that could be in play. But much of it is about what was in the individual's mind and what proof is there about what was in his mind. And we, you know, we know a lot about how this president acts and how this president behaves. And I don't think anyone reads the, the quote unquote, you know, transcript or the notes of that call and doesn't say, well, that sounds exactly like something Donald Trump would do. It sounds like something he would do when he was running a commercial real estate business in Manhattan. Um, so, you know, I don't think that's that's a shock. But to me, that actually is the wrong question, because from my perspective, from from an impeachment perspective, it really is about did the president abuse his office, abuse his authority and whether or not it is technically and, I, and you're going to get, you know, 50 lawyers saying absolutely it's a violation of the following three provisions of the U.S. Code, and you're going to get a bunch of lawyers on the other side saying absolutely not. Just like we saw the debate about whether or not the president had committed obstruction. How many different lawyers did he get in the room arguing about whether or not he committed obstruction or not? So to me, that's the wrong question. And if we focus too much on that question, we're missing the bigger picture. Okay, but I do want to focus on that question for just a little bit longer, because you are, as you said, you're a you're a, a longtime prosecutor. You're a high-ranking official in the Obama Justice Department. And I'm curious, uh, this allegation was um, referred to the Justice Department, ultimately to the head of the criminal division by the, the DNI um, and the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community. The Justice Department didn't even really open up an investigation. I'm not even sure it was a preliminary inquiry. Right. They looked at it and said there's no case here. Right. How would you have—if that had been referred to you um, and you had to make the call— sitting there at the Justice Department with your prosecutor's hat on, how do you think you would have handled it? Well, I think I would have done more. I think because the Justice Department opens investigations every single day on much, much less predication than they had here, as we understand it, right? Um, and by predication, of course, I mean just, you know, sufficient facts to look into it more. You know, one thing that we don't really know is whether or not, you know, the president withheld funding, I think that it's been reported he did. The question is reported. why. But, but what why? was the but motivation? Why? And, right. and was there some nexus between that phone call right. and that withholding? I think that's very relevant to the yeah. question of whether or not you know he violated the criminal law. And I think you need to know that. And, and so, if he did, if, if there is a direct connection, what is the violation, the potential violation of law there? Well, I think and I, what crime would have been? Committed? Yeah. So you're. I don't know. I'd have to go look at the code book. Right. But I think, you know, in general, um, and I'm not a corruption prosecutor, so yeah. I want to talk about fraud. Yeah. We can talk about that. But I think that in general, the concern would be that the president is requesting something and saying, if you essentially, if you do this, if you investigate my political rival, you will get funding, right? Or conversely, you'll be denied the funding. That's the import of it. So was it extortion? Maybe. And, it, and maybe it's bribery. So, you know, you can either offer a bribe or accept a bribe. And in this circumstance, um, I think that the, the concern would be that, in effect, the president had offered a bribe or offered, you know, or, or threatened to withhold something to which, you know, president of Ukraine was entitled. 
to get what he wanted, which is you know another country digging up dirt. But on, look, but look, just to be clear here, yeah. because you know when when you know in diplomacy or when heads of state negotiate, there are always uh, quid pro quos. We're always trying to get another government to do something before we do something good for them. So, okay, clean up your human rights mess. Otherwise, we're not going to release the funds. That yeah. happens right. every or day. Or the so, Iran deal, you know, right. sign the Iran deal and we'll so, release all the funds. So uh, what would make... Hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. That, I mean, and now clearly yeah. this, is, this is cruder if it happened because mm-hmm. it's about his own personal political benefits. But what what is fundamentally different in a legal sense? That's what's fundamentally different. Okay. In all of those other circumstances, the government officials are acting on behalf of the United States, not in their personal interest. So would we be having any debate if one of our ambassadors, you know, went to a foreign head of state and said, hey, look, you really need to clean up your human rights abuses, or let me give a better example. Um, If you want some funding, you know, to help, you know, shore up your armed forces, you're going to have to pay me $50,000 a month or, or, into a Swiss bank right, account. Or, right. I mean, would anyone yeah, have yeah, any concerns right, that that right, was an right. issue? No, I was just going to say the use of leverage of funding is, you know, we have exhibit A in Biden's, uh, you know, demand of the Ukrainians to fire the prosecutor. Exactly. That was, they do it in six hours, I'm out of here, and, you know, the mon- the funding will be cut off if you don't fire the guy. Um, yeah, so, and, and that's, that, is, right. that is the fundamental problem here, right? The right. fundamental problem is that no one believes that it was in the interest of the United States. Right for the the new president of Ukraine to open an investigation into Joe Biden. And no one, I don't think any reasonable person way, is going to be mean, convinced of that. Since you brought up Joe Biden, actually you brought up Joe I Biden. Brought up Joe Biden. But yeah. were you in the White House Counsel's office when Hunter Biden joined the, the board of this Ukrainian? I don't believe I was. I don't have any I don't. That have was any 2014 memory. that he did. Okay. So you were leaving at the, the end of, yeah. I but, left in, this, in the middle of the year. But, but no, let me just go back to, okay, Okay, the uh, what what we know the when the Justice Department is brought in, they review it as a potential campaign finance violation because the theory being that the president was asking for a thing of value from a foreign government that could be helpful to his political campaign. What do you make of that question? I think that's a pretty narrow frame to look at this, you know, frankly. And, and I think if you look at it in that sort of technical way, it's not hard to see how they got to the answer that, well, you can't really say that this is a thing of value, and is this really a case that we would ever bring? And if not, right. then, you know, let's not investigate it. Yeah, I mean, is there any precedent for bringing a campaign finance prosecution based on a th- thing of value that you cannot assess what it's worth not being not <laughs> reported being, or, yeah. in this case, solicited from a foreign government? Is there any precedent for that? I don't know. My guess is there actually are cases where a sort of intangible thing of value is um, is that you know because Mueller kind of rejected that analysis Mm -hmm. in his when he reviewed the Trump Tower meeting and whether or not that was a uh, a solicitation for uh, an illegal illegal campaign contribution from a foreign government. You know, a theory pushed by your former boss, Bob Bauer, right. um, who, who was an FEC, a campaign finance lawyer, but didn't really get traction with the Mueller team. Right. And I think there is a really reasonable basis to disagree with that conclusion, because obviously there are all sorts of things. You can, you can actually place a market value on lots of things that aren't money. 
right? Services, for example. Why should it make a difference as a matter of law if someone is providing services that can be valued in monetary terms versus cash? You know, if that sort of were true and that that's the way that you could avoid running afoul of the campaign finance laws, it'd be really, really easy to well, just completely, Well, it, you know, doesn't have to be ca- it just has to be quantifiable. It doesn't have to be cash. Sure, right? but there are lots of things that you can find a market price for, right? I mean, we, we do that in the law all the time. Well, Even if it's you, not, how, what would you assess the market price of an investigation into Joe Biden is? Well, obviously, Donald Trump <laughs> thinks it's worth a hell of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so, they could, you know, Zelensky we know that. Come back and said we investigated. If he didn't think it were worth much, he probably yeah, wouldn't yeah. have made that phone call. Potentially worth something. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, yeah, you're right. But that, all they did, from what we know, is the Justice Department reviewed it from that angle. Right. And I agree with you that the the larger criminal issues would be bribery or extortion, using that military aid to get what you wanted for political purposes. But again, to me, I don't really think that's the issue that the House needs to be grappling with. I'm sure they will. But, but, you know, fundamentally, it is, is do we have a president who is using his position to further his own personal gain? Obviously, there are a lot of different instances where people have raised concerns about you know, him doing exactly that. This is the most blatant. And you know, throughout our history, that has been a primary concern of, of, Congr- of Congress in terms of you know, making sure that, that people in the White House, including the president but other White House staff, aren't using the White House basically to run a campaign run a political campaign as one example. We've had multiple examples of that, even in recent history. Well, you know, and that does raise another uh, potential criminal violation, which is the Hatch Act, Absolutely. right? I mean, if you have, you know, people from the State Department, for example, running around Eastern Europe, you know, trying to gin up investigations. They're not going to impeach him for a violation <laughs> no, of the Hatch Act. Well, of course, you know, there's a, th- yes. this is one of the yeah. statutes where, yeah. where, you know, I think OLC would say constitutionally it doesn't apply to the president to and the, the vice president. president. Mm-hmm. You know, the Anti-Lobbying right. Act is another one. Um, there's a whole host. But if a staffer did it, then yeah. absolutely. Okay, well, let me, let me ask you problem. about one other kind of avenue of misconduct that the whistleblower brought up that involves White House lawyers. And this this, this idea that um, they in his words, lock down the notes relating to the phone call and then place them in this more secure code word system uh, within the White House. What was your reaction um, when you uh, read about that? I thought it was very odd. That generally, the NSC and the, the career staff in, you know, down in the Situation Room, they've got processes that they've been using for a long, long time. You know, they're, they're robust processes and people don't generally monkey around with them. And so any time that there's a deviation from process, if I'm thinking about it as the White House counsel, I'd want to know why there was a deviation of process and there better be, you know, a damn good reason for it. So um, I don't know what the reason is. What if the reason is we had leaks of the president's uh, phone calls with other foreign leaders and this is intolerable. The president needs to have confidential phone calls with uh, foreign heads of state and we needed to take whatever action we could to prevent those records and, and those phone calls from being leaked. I think it is within totally within the reasonable purview of the White House to try to control the flow of information as long as they're not abusing the classification system to do so. In other words, class marking something as classified that's actually not. 
or otherwise acting inappropriately in terms of how you Well, the president can classify anything any, any way he wants, but if the president right? Says, if the president says, I want to, I, you know, this probably is not going to be a popular perspective, but if the president says, I'm going to call a foreign leader, and I only want to have, you know, five people participating on the phone or three people participating on the phone, and I want the notes to be very closely held of this call, I think that is appropriate as long as, again, it's not being closely held through an abuse of the classification system. But, you know, there may be sound and good reasons why uh, a president wants particular, you know, call information to be, it, th- these, these calls are very closely held, first of all. Um, and typically, historically, there have been no leaks. I mean, if you go back and think about, boy, did any of President George W. Bush's calls with foreign leaders ever leak? Not that I can recall. Likewise, did any of President Obama's? I don't. I don't recall a, a situation like that. And I was. So there. you would say. The, so the it was, this was they, so irregular, right? It was, it was irregular, but on its face, you do not see this as evidence of obstruction of justice. Not if it were done for appropriate purposes, and if there were pro, pro, now, th- where this becomes tricky is that on its face, it doesn't look like there necessarily is an appropriate reason why it was why it was. No, no, I mean, the appropriate reason, which I think is going to be a defense, is that, you know, we were were freaked out about all these leaks and we had to do something. Right. The conversations may not be classified. They may not be hugely sensitive, but they still are sensitive. Anytime two foreign... uh, Sure. And the process began well before this phone call. So you can't link it to... I think it began days after the president's inauguration. You can't link it to a a part of a plot to conceal this particular phone call as opposed to any others, leaving aside the question of whether there was any official proceeding they were trying to obstruct at that point. Well, this particular phone call, what we don't know is whether or not they were handling other call notes this way, right? It's been Uh, reported they were. If they were, I think that's that's a good fact for them. If they weren't handling other call notes that way and only handled this one that way, then that starts to look really irregular, and they did it because of the content of the call. Let me ask you about the conduct of another senior lawyer in the Trump administration, the Attorney General, Bill Barr. Mm -hmm. Um, So what has been reported over the last few days um, is that uh, Barr, um, among other things, was... um, he asked uh, the president to call the prime minister of Australia uh, to uh, give him entree so that he can continue to look into allegations about how the uh, Mueller Russia probe got started. And then I think more seriously, he actually traveled himself to Italy, to Rome, where he accompanied John Durham, who he had appointed to do the review of the origins of the Russia investigation, to look into uh, some of that evidence. What is, how does that strike you? The attorney general himself kind of taking on that kind of investigative role on a, just a discreet case. Yeah. I'm going to drive you guys nuts again. <laughs> the answer to, really is that it depends. So it would not be atypical at all for an attorney general to get a call sheet, for example, or in advance of meeting his or you know her foreign counterpart to get talking points for that meeting that referenced an investigation that the Justice Department was doing and asked the attorney general to, to raise with, with his counterpart, hey, we're really having a hard time getting cooperation from you know, your guys on such and such investigation. It would be really helpful if you could you know, send a message that this is an important part of our, or our law enforcement cooperation 
th- that happens a lot. So I would say that's in the typical category, and maybe that's what happened. There's here. no indication that that's exactly what Barr was doing. Right. Here. I think it's very, very different if it's a top-down. Um, I think it would be, in my experience, quite unusual for the attorney general to have sort of a pet issue that just so happens to coincide with the president of the United States' pet issue. And is sort of... Which is a, a, a an effort by the president of the United States to say that, you know, a, a special prosecutor investigation into him was a hoax, obviously with benefits, political benefits that would accrue to him if that ends up being, you know, the result of, of this investigation. So it's not just any case either. No, I agree. And I think that that's very irregular as well. I mean, if there are... If there really are serious concerns, and I'm unaware of none, about whether an investigation into basically Russian interference in the 2016 election was improperly predicated. And again, I'm unaware of any evidence that that there's even a suggestion of that. But let's say there were. The appropriate mechanism for reviewing that is the inspector general at the Justice Department. That's what the IG does, right? Or, you know, depending on the nature of it, maybe the Office of Professional Responsibility, if their attorneys are involved, you know, if it's the FBI, generally it would be the IG. So this, the whole thing is weird um, in terms of how it comports with the traditional way that the department would handle these types of things. Okay, last question. Kathy, uh, Chairman Schiff and uh, Chairman Cummings have subpoenaed the White House for all Ukraine documents. Schiff just said in a press conference that if they do not turn it over, uh, that will be uh, the, the uh, committees will take an, an inference that uh, they are concealing information and that it will weave its way into uh, an obstruction charge against the president. How do you distinguish the White House's refusal so far to turn over these documents from your own actions when uh, you were being uh, (laughs) demanded by the House uh, for fast and furious documents about the uh, ATF's operation down at the Mexican border, something that was uh, the subject of a authorized congressional investigation, yet you refused to turn over the documents. So how do you distinguish your own position from that of the uh, Trump White House position? They're completely different. We never refused to provide documents. The White House was never subpoenaed in the Fast and Furious investigation. Well, the Attorney General was. The Attorney General was. And he refused to turn over the documents. Restricted. Uh, With your advice. The administration turned over some documents. The the, the administration turned over... Like tens of tens of thousands yeah. of pages of documents. What right. the what the administration declined to provide and did so in the in the context of a formal assertion of executive privilege. Right. Okay? okay, which this White House has, has yet to yet do. Done, but but which they were likely. And we did a formal assertion right. of executive privilege there, and right. the reason why was because what the Congress was seeking there, the Republican-led Congress was seeking there in that circumstance, was not the the documents about the operation itself, which were provided and were provided fulsomely, but they were then seeking all of the internal deliberations about how the Justice Department should engage with Congress in the course of Congress's investigation. This is very wonky um, mm-hmm. for your listeners, but we would we refer to that. Listeners. We would refer mm-hmm. to that as sort of a memos on memos request, uh-huh. and um, and 
Ooh. I know. It's so meta, right? I'm getting yeah. hot. <laughs> Super meta. Uh, but the idea is that uh, the Congress is absolutely entitled to, to conduct oversight over government operations. But what they're really not entitled, because there isn't a legitimate congressional interest in understanding how the lawyers sat around and thought about the best way to engage with Congress in terms of their oversight, that that would be particularly chilling. And that's the position that the executive branch has taken so across would, a variety of administrations. So you would have turned over records and documents relating to a presidential phone call with a foreign leader? Oh, now you're talking about White House documents. That's a whole different yeah, kettle of fish. Well, that's what's been subpoenaed Yeah, no, here that's what's been Cummings. subpoenaed yeah. here. And, um, you know, there's that there's a long history of tussle between White Houses yes. and the Congress uh, because, you know, the White House is a different place than the mm-hmm. other than the other agencies. And I think, um, you know, what every president would likely say is that, you know, call records between a president and a, and a foreign leader are sort of like the crown jewels of the kinds of things that, that, that a president's entitled to keep confidential. Uh, because of his unique constitutional role in, in you know, conducting foreign policy. And so that taking that position is, is not atypical. What's, what's unusual here and what's going to make this really, really interesting to watch mm-hmm. is that, first of all, that they affirmatively disclosed. Yeah, I mean, is that, they made a choice is to disclose it. Is it harder it. To, for presidents to, uh, to make that decision going forward yes. now that the Trump— yes. White House has done this? Every time a disclosure is made, a voluntary disclosure is made, it makes it harder for the next president to come and draw that line because these these fights between the Congress and the executive, are they're all based on precedent, on historical precedent. So you would have advised them not to turn over that, it, They uh, made a political memo. decision, obviously, as, right. a, as a White House counsel who's just thinking about the prerogatives of the presidency. I'm, I'm sure I, I would have been the voice in the room saying, if you do this, you're going to open up a can of worms. And then it's going to be very, very hard to sort of, you know, ring fence around that those call notes. And, and the reason is, is because, and this is where the executive has typically, historically, had to give more to Congress than they want to give, is when there is some evidence of wrongdoing. So it's, it is because Congress's interest in getting to the bottom of that and in, in performing their own constitutional role goes way up if they, if there's there, there, right? Whereas if they're just looking like they're fishing politically, their argument for the need for them to get the information. Do you think is that weaker. was the analysis inside the Trump administration that you know, hey, we really <laughs> fucked this thing up. We better t- we better turn the documents over. I doubt it. I you know I, I I'm assuming that they thought that it would the political that the political was pressure was just too great and they had to let some air out of the balloon and that was the only way to do it. But also I think Trump, it's gonna be hard. Trump. Wait a second. But it is also the case that at the end of the day, it is the president who can make the final decision. And he, and he said the call was. Perfect. The call perfect. Was perfect. So exactly. no say, exposure there. It was perfect, and it was beautiful. And beautiful. If I say it was enough times, my mom called me last night. She's like, "Explain something to me." She's like, "What exactly does that mean? That it was a perfect call?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it went through. I, mean, I have no idea. I don't know. Well, I was like, I can explain can a lot, but I can't explain. That. I would say, and I'm not yeah. surprised about this. That this was a perfect interview. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us. Son Skullduggery. Thanks so much. Nice to see you both. 
Thanks to former White House counsel to President Barack Obama, Kathy Rumler, and former Deputy Secretary of State and Foreign Policy Advisor to Biden for President, Tony Blinken, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. Now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.